0: Conference to Restore Humanity 2023 is an invitation for K-12 and college educators to break the doom loop and build a platform for hopeful, positive action. Our conference is designed around the accessibility, sustainability, and affordability of virtual learning while engaging participants in a classroom environment that models the same progressive pedagogy we value with students. Instead of long Zoom presentations with a brief Q&A, Keynotes are flipped, and attendees will have the opportunity for extended conversation with our speakers. Antonia Darter, with 40 years of insight as a scholar, artist, activist, and author of numerous works, including Culture and Power in the Classroom. Cornelius Minor, community-driven Brooklyn educator, co-founder of The Minor Collective, and author of We Got This. Jose Luis Vilson, New York City educator, co-founder and executive director of EduColor, and author of This Is Not a Test, and Iowa WTF, a coalition of young people fighting discriminatory legislation through advocacy, activism, and civic engagement. And instead of back-to-back online workshops, we are offering asynchronous learning tracks where you can engage with the content and the community at any time on topics like environmental education for social impact, applying game design to education, and anti-racist universal design for learning. This year, we're also featuring daily events from organizations, educators, and activists to build community and sustain practice. The Conference to Restore Humanity runs July 24th through the 27th. And as of recording, early bird tickets are still available. See our website, humanrestorationproject.org, for more information. And let's restore humanity together. Hello and welcome to episode 131 of our podcast at the Human Restoration Project. My name is Nick Covington. This episode is brought to you by our supporters, three of whom are Christina Danielle, Russell Walker, and Laura Henry. Thank you so much for your ongoing support. The trailer you heard in the intro is for our Conference to Restore Humanity, a fully virtual conference that runs July 24th through the 27th. We've got a stellar lineup, so we hope you'll join us. Tickets and info can be found at humanrestorationproject.org conference. This episode is a panel discussion we had with game designer and author Adrian Hahn on the pros and pitfalls of gamification as part of our EdU Futurism Learning Series. You can find all of the previous events, including innovative AI tools for the classroom and their dilemmas, and learning from video game tutorials, as well as register for upcoming events in the series at humanrestorationproject.org slash learning. You can also find this video and others on our YouTube channel by searching for Human Restoration Project. And with that, I'll hand it over to Chris. Enjoy the episode.
1: Welcome, everyone. Today for our EduFuturism Learning Series, the last one on video game design, we're joined by Adrian Hahn, Um, Adrian is the recent author of You've Been Played, How Corporations, Governments, and Schools Use Games to Control Us All. He is an award-winning video game designer and the CEO and founder of Six to Start. Uh, He's the co-creator of one of the world's most successful smartphone fitness games there, Zombies Run. Um, And he was previously the director of play at Mind Candy, where he created alternative reality games. Uh, You've Been Played. It's it's a really fantastic work. It outlines how gamification has often become a form of boring behavior style control and it recognizes how gamification has essentially made its way into all forms of our life and we wanted to invite adrian on the series because gamification is so present in classrooms that really took hold I'd say like the late 2000s and remain strong now, whether that be adding points and badges to existing lessons or creating apps that track reward or punish students um, or teachers. So in our conversation today, we'll be having a question driven discussion, uh, what it means to gamify content, learning, pedagogy and everything and anywhere in between. Um, So welcome, Adrian. Uh, Adrian, we appreciate you being here. Uh, If you want to do like a a short intro and we'll, we'll go from there.
2: Sure. Um well thanks for having me. It's great to be here. Um yeah, you know, like I I you know, usually have a kind of feel about gamification. Um you know, I, I first kind of got into this because um you know, I've been designing games for a long time. Um a lot of those games have been what people would call serious games, you know, educational games, games with like a non-entertainment purpose. And those kind of fall within this idea of gamification which is using using um, ideas from game design for, for you know serious things like education or health or for politics or, or training or anything like that and um, you know the term gamification really only came about like about 15 years ago it's a pretty it's a pretty new um, word uh, even though the concepts behind it are very old I mean people often, tell me as if it's a kind of a gotcha. Well, people have been doing this for hundreds of years. It's like, I, I'm aware that people have been doing this for a long time. But there's a reason why this word gamification really only started taking purchase, you know, 15 years ago, because it started getting much, much more widespread um, with the with the spread of the Internet, with apps, with Web 2.0 and, and with um, smartphones. And I think, you know, when I, when I first came across gamification, uh, I, I thought it, um, I didn't love it, um, because, because it felt, it didn't really feel fun. Um, I think, I think people had the idea that if we add points and badges and leaderboards to, to activities, then it would be, uh, they, they would make them fun and engaging. And that, that did not seem to be true. Um, but I thought it would basically go away of its own accord. Basically people would try lots of gamification, it would be a big bubble and then it would go away. And I noticed probably about five years ago that I just started seeing it in more and more places. You know, I started reading about gamification being used in Amazon warehouses. I started seeing it being used in, you know, for, for controlling Uber drivers, you know, I started seeing it health insurance everywhere. It, instead of going away, it just seemed to be getting more and more common. And, and, you know, even though I hated the idea of kind of thinking about it, um, I wanted to write a book about it because uh you know I wanted to sort of like explore look like, how, how is it being used in practice is it is it good does it work um and and how widespread it is and I think you know people often ask me you know what is the most kind of surprising thing you know example of gamification that I found and it has been class dojo it, it was you know I'm not just saying that because I'm, I'm talking about like education here it really was um you know class dojo I think If you're a teacher, I'm sure you've probably heard about ClassDojo or, you know, people who use it. It's a classroom management app, behavior management app that basically does two things. It's kind of like a private social network, you know, for for parents, teachers and students. But it's also a way for teachers to kind of reward or punish students for a range of behaviors for points. And I think when I first heard about it, I thought this can't actually be true. Like, I I don't really believe it, really. Um... And then I started reading more and more reports of it. I started reading papers on it. I was like, I've literally never heard of this. And I spend my time making gamification. I don't understand like how there's such a disconnect here. I would talk to parents about it. i talk to teachers and they'd say, well, of course, don't you know about class dojo? I was like, no, I don't know about it. People don't talk about this thing. And so there's a whole section in the book devoted to class dojo. And it is one of the examples that I used. And it also happens to be, one of the things that gets people most uh, vocally uh, responsive, you know, I've done interviews about the book and on radio, and most of the calls in are by people, by teachers, complaining about class surgery, right? And and the other calls are from from Uber drivers and Amazon workers, right? You know, that people have direct experience of gamification. So, uh, I, you know, that's kind of my interest there. It, I think I think it's really a little bit. Shocking. Uh, I think it's a little bit sad because I think that there are ways to use gamification, to use video games, you know, ideas from games for good in in um, education. But um, actually, in practice, like if you are a student, you know, the gamification that you're most likely to encounter, you know, at school is not great. And and um, you know, speaking as someone from the video games world, I think. Uh, we like to t- talk a good game about how games can be good, but actually in practice, I think I think um, a lot of stuff that you see is is not good. So that's my that's my sort of intro piece, I guess, about gamification.
1: Awesome, and I figure, I mean, at at this point, we're just going to open up the floor. We've pre prepared some questions, um, but uh, maybe to get us started, I'll ask one, and then from there, feel free just to to dive in. Either ask questions in the chat, or you can unmute and talk that way. Um, but something I wanted to open up with is, uh, speaking as your experience as someone who developed like one of the arguably early gamified apps, uh, that's, that's widely successful. And I know you talk about this in the book. I'm like, what makes that, um, like good game design versus what we're seeing today, uh, what is an example of gamification as good practice? So there's one thing I think all of us are probably familiar with class dojo, and we recognize the the issues with that platform, um, but there is an argument that perhaps there is a use for gamification in classrooms as well as a good practice. What does that look like to have a game that's actually well gamified that promotes positive behaviors um, without it turning nefarious or, or dark or eerie?
2: I mean, I, I think that the best examples of gamification that I can think of are things are really specific, you know, to like a subject, rather than like here's one weird trick that will improve all learning, you know, of all kinds. And so, one example that I use um, is this game called Kerbal Space Program, which is um, a a kind of like simulator. You know, you build you build rockets in this game and you launch them and you try and put these little Kerbal, you know, people into orbit and uh, you can build, you know, space stations and and moon bases and so on. I played it and, um, you know, it's fun um, because it's fun just building stuff and seeing rockets blow up, you know, and and, like doing silly things. But it's also an extremely uh, accurate physics simulator. And, What that means is it is able to explain to you a lot of like really counterintuitive things about like physics and about orbital mechanics, which is to say, okay, well, why is it like, why is it so hard to get into space? I mean, space is only hundred miles up. You know, you have to go into orbit. You have to go really fast. How do you do kind of like plane change maneuvers? How do you like, you know, like if if I'm here and the space station is here, how do I get there? Can I just go and like put my thrusters in that direction? Actually, no, you're going to do this other thing. And just by the process of playing that game, you learn about this stuff. And I think that, you know, there are other games like that, you know, um, like Factorio or or like, you know, puzzle games, where where they sort of teach you to kind of, you know, like think in in different ways and kind of, um, you know, there's some games that that essentially teach programming, even though they don't really talk about it that way, you know, like how to construct loops and how to construct if statements and things like that. And I think what is distinctive about them I mentioned that they're specific. They're not trying to be like, well, here's one game that is good to teach you English and French and physics and geography. It's like, no, we can only really do one thing at a time because it's really hard to make anything fun at all. Right. <laughs> um, and so it is it is really hard to make you know orbital mechanics fun. It's really hard to make programming fun. They mentioned it for one thing. Um and I think that's the other thing, which is like, I mean, it sounds obvious, but like the 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 mark I think of good gamified product or experience is that people would do it even if they weren't being told to, right? Um, And people would pay for it, but kids would pay for it. You know, I see so many examples of gamification out there where they say, "Well, it's so popular." It's like if you have to give it away a little bit, but then then like maybe people. I'm not saying that you shouldn't give things away. Like it's more just like. If you're able to sell something to someone as they're able to do for games like Kerbal Space for Program it means that like, it's of high enough quality, you know, and it's fun enough that people are like, no, I want to spend my time on it. And so many gamified experiences I see are pretty like built. So that the only way they can actually get people to use them is because they're free. Because if you had to pay for it, people would be like, well, it sucks. I'm not going to use that. So those are kind of two quick examples.
0: If I could, I, I'm I'm glad that we started with the positive examples of gamified experiences, because I, I fear that the, the vast majority of them are, are not necessarily that. And you had mentioned in that introduction, the rise of social gamification, really kind of coming up with the age of smartphones, the ability to track data from your pocket more than we had um, the capacity to before. But I wonder if the user experience of it tends to be framed negatively. So either through Class Dojo or through Uber, Amazon, et cetera, what is like the inherent promise of gamification? Who Who is it intended for? And why did it appear to fail in these big examples in which maybe it didn't live up to its promise?
2: I mean, I I, I think, you know, I think that's a good question. I, th- I think there's lots of, you know, th- th- you could sort of classify gamification by, in a way, who's paying and who's benefiting for it. You know, and so, uh, you know, if you look at something like, you know, your Apple Watch, you're kind of paying for it. You know, you're, you know, a- Apple doesn't really get any money if you use, you know, the, the gamified features on your Apple Watch, like scores and, and achievements. I mean, they they kind of like it because maybe you're buying another Apple Watch, but it's not really that direct. And so, I think in that case you know, um, things where you're paying for it and you're kind of choosing it, um, I would say, you know, those people, in those cases, people like them, because, or people people use a gamification because they think it will um, motivate them and reward them to do something they, they, you know, already want to do. So an example would be Duolingo, right? No one was like making you use Duolingo, right? Um and so they see the gamification, which is very clearly like marketed, you know, in 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 Duolingo, and they think, well, uh, I find it hard to to learn French and to sort of you know read vocabulary books. Um, and so maybe you know turning it into a game will work. Um that doesn't mean it does work, right? I, I think Duolingo is actually extremely problematic. Um, but I think that that like the, the idea of of that is like well okay it, it's all right and like you are buying into that and so that is very different however from something like uber or you know working for uber working for Amazon where if you work for Uber you don't really have any choice but to have your working conditions gamified right if you're working for Uber you will be offered quests right to to um do 50 trips this week and if you do that then you'll earn an extra $50. And you'll think, wow, great, you know, like extra money for me. I said, well, not really. I mean, like they could just give you the money anyway, you know. Like, they, they don't, they should, it, you know, it shouldn't have to be contingent on hitting this target, right? And so, even though it's framed as a bonus, it's not really a bonus. It's kind of more, you know, because your pay is like not particularly high. It's it's more like withholding money. I mean, certainly if you look at it that way. And so, I think the problem there is that basically the gamification is obfuscating um your pay and your kind of working conditions you know and 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 it's also degrading your working conditions and so those are kind of two different things you know I call it in the book coercive gamification you know these are these are forms of gamification where you go into work and hey like now now you have to play this game whether you like it or not and then you have what I call sort of lifestyle gamification which is like Duolingo which is the Apple Watch and that sort of thing where it's probably better right like no one's forcing you to do it but in practice, I think it doesn't actually. Usually, it doesn't actually work that well. Usually, it's kind of oversold, and often, actually, in the case of Duolingo, it ends up being, I think, kind of like quite antisocial and counterproductive. Because, just a sort of short aside on on Duolingo, if we've got time, my um my uh, partner's mum, you know, uses Duolingo, and you know, we notice that like occasionally she just disappear off into another room like in the middle of a conversation or dinner, you know, for like an hour. And then and then, you know, there'd be like Duolingo sounds coming from the other room. And then it would turn out that she got a notification about XP happy hour um, from her Duolingo app. And so basically the idea is that like for that hour you get double experience points, you know, for the, the Duolingo you know lessons you complete. Um, and it's usually in the evenings. And it's just, I think that's terrible. I think I think it's such a terrible thing. Like I don't think anyone who signs up to Duolingo thinking I want to go and learn Mandarin thinks I also want to be interrupted during my dinner, and and like have my kind of value system like manipulated to the point where I'm going to like just depart because now like I value the XP more than I value like actually learning you know this language. But that's what they've been able to do, and Duolingo is a fascinating because um, the the uh, the designers will spend a lot of time actually on social media, very openly saying, "Here's how we um, here's how we maximise engagement by like doing all these tricks." I'm like, "You're just saying it in the open," and people people don't seem to mind. It's very strange. So those are that's a bit rambly, but those are the distinctions I've made there.
1: Yeah, as like a, a really early version of that, I think about in the, like the 90s and maybe the 80s, the like library book reading programs, uh, where the second that a kid is introduced to myself included, uh, the second that you learn about those programs is like, well, how many books can I quickly get through in order to earn that pizza uh, ASAP? Because uh, that's really all that matters at the end of the day, the book doesn't matter yeah. anymore. Uh, and it, it, yeah, it's just, it's it's interesting to note how, how similar that is. And I... I want to make sure too that we hit on um kind of the the origins of this you talk about the the quantified self movement uh, which i wasn't familiar with that at all but the more and more i looked into that like the more and more i was like man this is really similar to how schools function in terms of assessment and testing uh you you quote in there uh one of the originators says uh, unless something can be measured, it cannot be improved. So we are on a quest to collect as many personal tools that will assist us in quantifiable measurement of ourselves. Um, can you just talk a bit about yeah. that? Yeah.
2: So, so the quantified self movement is is a very kind of Californian uh, thing, which more or less came about when we had the technology, you know, to track elements of, you know, human behavior and human health, like automatically. And so, you know, a good example would be, uh, okay, maybe we had pedometers, like in the past I had, I was like a really nerdy kid and I had a pedometer for some reason, but like, you know, you get a Fitbit, right? And a Fitbit, you know, um, can can measure your steps and your distance and it can sync it to a computer. And so the quantified self movement was, okay, let's let's try and hack together devices and software to do like a homegrown Fitbit before Fitbit exists. And so, you know, someone who's really into quantified self would be weighing themselves every day and putting in Excel, they'd be, you know, measuring their, their you know, their steps, they'd be, you know, just measuring everything they can. And it was possible to do that because the electronics were, were starting to come out and starting to be get cheaper. Um, and it sort of married with this, very you know um this sort of like feeling in the 2000s this kind of supremacy i guess of of um you know science and i mean i say that as a scientist former scientist you know like this kind of supremacy of like objectivism and and like okay um the only thing worth kind of studying are things that we can assign numbers to and i think when it started it was you know, really exciting. I think for the people who are really involved, because maybe they'd had bad experiences with like the traditional healthcare system. You know, they go to their doctor and, and they'd say, "I have this particular problem," and the doctor would be like, "Well, you know, like I don't have time to talk to you. Like it's probably all in your mind or whatever." And so, Quantified Self basically promised that would let people sort of take control of you know the information about their bodies, and then. Sort of run experiments on themselves, you know, and see the effects. So they might say, "Okay, now I'm going to stop eating wheat. What does that do to my energy levels?" Now I'm going to start doing this. What does it do to that? Obviously, not very scientific in in some ways, but like I I get the appeal, which is like, well, I I want to like I don't see why I can't have information about myself. And I think where as as with a lot of things with good intentions, you know, like it it, it sort of ended up becoming like extremely um financialized where you know now the quantified self-movement kind of doesn't really exist because it just got built into apple watches and 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 um wearables and and the data is a bit harder to sort of get hold of and it's all become it's all become monetized but the other thing is that you know it's one thing to have the data about yourself and to see that you're walking 4,000 steps you know a day and maybe you want to get to 10,000 steps a day right and so what um, people, kind of all immediately landed upon as a sort of mechanism to motivate themselves to to change their behavior was gamification. They're like, well, okay, the only thing I can think of that can that, that I can use to make myself change my behavior is gamification. But I will, of course, I will give myself stars. Of course, I will give myself points, you know. I'll give myself achievements and leaderboards, right and I just found that kind of really fascinating that like that you know it it was just like well that that's obviously the only thing I'm going to do and even to today if you go and look at people talking about occasionally if you go and look on like hacker forums and technology forums you'll you'll see these like end of year posts by by people who have like measured 50 million things about their bodies and invariably they'll say, well, I gave myself 50 points for doing this and I gave myself minus 20 points for doing these things that I didn't like. And so that's how I kind of, uh, that's how I motivated myself to to um, change my behavior. And I think those, um, you know, those sorts of uh, behavioral change kind of mechanisms ended up in consumer products, you know, being used by, you know, hundreds of millions of people. Um, because the people who design Quantified Self and like, who use Quantified Self back in the early 2000s are the exact same people or friends with the people who designed the Apple Watch. You know, they all, I mean, I'm not like suggesting any conspiracy here. It's just, they all live in Silicon Valley. Like, you know, that they go to the same conferences. Like if you're a designer at Apple, Watch, at Apple, you don't get ideas from nowhere. You know, you probably read about it somewhere. And so that's, these are the ideas that were sort of floating around.
1: This is a quick follow-up as you're explaining this, it it makes me think a lot about um, digital LMSs or learning management systems in school and how, yes, grades and tests and assignments have always been like handed back to kids and made them feel a certain way. But now we're we're at the point where you instantaneously know uh, when that assignment's been graded, you get a notification on your phone and you check it ASAP and it completely changes like how a kid feels about themselves and their emotions in real time, to the point where you have family members and and students like complaining that like 4 p.m. like they just got home or maybe they're eating dinner with their family and now they know that like you know Mr. Smith gave them an F on an assignment and there's like a a, a a feeling of control and dominance there on like how much academia has become part of just like the the daily life of a, as a as a kid in the exact same way that class dojo like sets norms and cultural norms through discipline um or as adults like you're constantly assessed on your performance at your job or, or even like email uh, something as simple as that yes. and, like responses yeah
2: I, I think that's really important because you know whenever i talk about the subject you know especially when i talk about class dojo or about you know people getting um having their workplace gamified you know is some Smart ass will always come along and say, Well, haven't we always done that? You know, didn't we always get grades? It's like there is a big difference between getting a grade at the end of the semester or the end of the week or the end of the month and getting it micro grades every 10 seconds, right? And, and if you can't see that, then, then you're sort of being a little bit willfully obtuse, you know, like because, you know, that I think I, I would sort of tie it back to this sort of idea of, you know, quote unquote play in the sort of game design sense, you know? You, you you know, people talk about about fun and play coming from being able to have a sense of freedom within a sense of constraints, right? Like, you know, school is going to have some constraints, a workplace is going to have some constraints, you know, in terms of rules and things like that. But uh, otherwise it'd just be complete chaos. But within that, you want to, you ideally want to give people some freedom in how they approach their work, you know, and how they sort of do their job, unless you want to treat them like robots. And I think the process of grading people, you know, continuously and, um, and then seeing that feedback um, eliminates that ability to play because there's essentially much more sort of a close, close, you know, finer grain control being put over their behavior. Um, and it, yeah, you know, I mean, I, I think it's bad. I think it's very different from, I, I think it's a very different experience than from getting getting a grade you know, more infrequently, um, even though it is still getting grades, kind of. Um, and, and that is a technological part of it, you know, that like you cannot do that kind of fine-grained uh, feedback, you know, where people will get grades at 4 p.m. or whatever without having the internet, without having smartphones, without having, you know, soon AI or, or things like that, you know, it's just not really possible to do that at scale unless you have technology. So that's why it is different.
0: I wonder if there is, since you were talking about the difference between gamification in the in the game design sense, you know, we think about mechanics, we think about um, events, we think about those kinds of things versus the the vision of gamification that that you're addressing um, with with um, all all these things, which seems to be like the Skinner box aspect of things, right? When involved in behaviorism and reinforcement, but I wonder, have you have you um, thought, looked, or do we have any, I, I I hate to ask about the data around this, but like mm-hmm. about the cumulative effects, right? The macro effects of living a life um, in a society at, with with government agencies, you know, um, for-profit companies who have all kind of bought into this gamification. We're all on the receiving end of this. What are those big macro level um, impacts?
2: So um no, it is is answer. like I don't I don't did, think we have a lot of data about that. And partly that's just because you know the you know research is not funded into this, you know, and it should be. Um, you know, I was astonished at like how little research there is into Class Dojo, given like, how pervasive it is. There's, there's very few papers really uh, about it. Um and, you know, the other problem with gamification of any kind of fast moving technology is that as soon as you you study it, it's like out of date, you know, and God knows, you know, it takes like three years to get a paper published or, you know, to do a study. And, and, and so everything I'm reading is just completely out of date. Um, and then you sort of put on top of that, that the, the, the burden, you know, people obviously want really accurate studies, they want double blind studies, it just takes forever to sort of run those. So... But then I would sort of pull back one step, and I, I would say, okay, so imagine we have a study that said, actually, if you go and monitor kids every like five seconds and give them like a grade into their augmented reality glasses, that their, their sort of performance goes up 5%, would we say, well, okay, that that's great, actually, we should do that, because the data says yes. Like, you know, um, or would we go and say, actually, no, that's sort of against our values, right? And I think that those are kind of two different things. It's like, you know, what, like, you sort of have to decide, will we do anything, you know, to to increase, you know, students' performance at standardized testing? Or are there certain things where we're like, actually, like, our values are sort of against that. We don't think that we, we should be putting that on kids, even if, on average, it improves, you know, the performance. And so, like, my argument would be, like firstly, we don't have the data. But even if we have the data, I don't think that is actually how we think people should be learning. Like you know, um and and so that is a harder stance to take because because then you're kind of saying, well, no, like I think there are certain things which we which I'm not like prepared to do, even if even if like the data points in that direction,
1: yeah. and I would imagine, too, just interestingly enough, even if the data pointed the opposite way, that because there's a financial incentive in doing this type of work, Like, why would I follow it anyway? In the exact same way that, I mean, we have 99.9% of climate change uh, papers point one way, but we still don't actively act on those things because there's a financial incentive um, at a macro level to not follow those things, at least not according to the companies that are involved, right? Like there's a, there's a huge monetary component there.
2: Yeah, I, I. I mean, I don't want to be, I definitely don't want to be like a conspiracy theorist about it at all. Like I used to be a scientist, you know, I think data is important, but I think that the, the, um, the role in which sort of like research plays, and usually it's not very powerful research in terms of like, it's sort of explanatory power, or statistical power, you know, is usually, I mean, the way I've seen it in my book, you know, where I look at companies who are selling lifestyle gamification, like brain training apps, like education apps, they'll go and say, well, if you go and use our brain training app, you'll go and increase your, you know, maths ability by like 50%. And then you go and look at the paper and like, this paper sucks. It's just terrible paper. You know, you're sort of misrepresenting the benefits, but but you're kind of saying that the data points in that direction. And like, you clearly do not actually, you're not interested in what the data says. It's just a marketing technique, right? And if there were, data that pointed in the opposite direction, you wouldn't share it with us, right? So, so, so I mean, that's kind of where we are, where like, I, I kind of feel like there is this burden of proof being placed on on things where it's like, well, head, you know, heads I win tells you lose. But it's like, well, if I, if I have a positive study, I'm going to use that. But if there's a negative study, I'm just going to ignore it. And so like, we, we kind of have to get around this idea that like, well, we can only act if the data says so, because like, it's going to be very difficult to do that.
1: Sure, that makes sense. Um, Let me shift gears here. I'm going to read uh, Nick's question here in the chat. Um, He asks, is there a different vocabulary we can use to better differentiate the types of gamification that are coercive or extrinsically incentivizing from ones like uh, Kerbal uh, Kerbal Space Program and simulations narrative-driven games that are more intrinsic in motivating the player? Like as in... Gamification is gimmicks and carrot on a stick stuff, whereas the new word would be a more ludic, playful human. So changing up the terminology.
2: Well, I mean, you know, we, you know, we we can. I I, th- I think that there are, you know, I think I think people have, you know, have used, you know, different words. Um, you know, like I I've tried to classify it as. I mean. I guess in my book I just I just classify as bad gamification as good gamification, honestly. Like if, I, <laughs> sure. if if I'm if I'm being direct about it, like you know, like I I think but but you know like that would be the same as like, can we use a, a word for like you know good games and bad games. We we just we just say they're good or bad. You know, I think I think I mean I guess I would go and say that um I call it generic gamification, you know, in my book, um if I'm being specific, which is like when you have something like Class Dojo or a lot of other um, apps where it's basically saying, I'm going to give you points for good things you do and minus points for bad things you do, and I'm going to give you achievements for good things you do and not achievements for bad things you do, and I'm going to go and rank you on a leaderboard. I call that generic gamification, and like that's not necessarily like a judgment that it's bad. It's just like, well, you're just using the same thing. And so you know, I think it's possible to more easily dismiss generic gamification because it's like, well, it's probably not going to really do anything for most people. Might do something for some people some of the time. Some people do actually respond to that. But um, it's generic and therefore it's only good to have a limited amount of power compared to more specific forms like Kerbal Space Program, like other things. And unfortunately, um, you know, a lot of companies are, are just really cheap uh, I mean companies a lot of like you know organizations are just cheap and they they would rather like buy one thing rather than you know buying something weird I mean Kerbal space program is weird you know like I can see why schools would be like I don't know why we should do anything with this can't we just go and get something that, that that will work for everything um and you know this sort of goes back to like I mean I'm not like an educator but I know that like people are different and they like different things so if I go and look at you know our own game Zombies Run which tries to make running more exciting. I'm, I am i do not imagine that this is going to work for everyone who's a runner even, you know, because a lot of people don't like zombies, right? Or a lot of people don't like listening to stories or they don't, you know, like when they're running or they don't like, you know, games or things like that. And so, you know, like I, I think that, that there is this search for kind of like a silver bullet, you know, in terms of gamification solutions when actually you can't get that because, I mean I, I don't wanna talk about learning styles. It's just more like some people like some things and other people like other things. And you will find, we found that Zombies Run has worked incredibly well for some people to the point where it's really transformed their lives and we've had 10 million people download it. But other people, they're like, yeah, I, I, I don't wanna use that. And I, I prefer doing Park Run or I prefer using Garmin watches. And that's great. And so, it's just like we can't do a one-size-fits-all. What, what we need there to be is like a thousand games, right? Um, and help it, make it possible for people to go and find the ones that are going to work for them. And, and you know, that that's where we need to be. Instead, we've kind of got like one game or or, or zero games, and, and we're just hoping that it's going to work for everything. And so that's kind of, that sort of feeds into my frustration with the research angle, where people will go and say, well, we've like studied gamification to see whether it like, it helps at this, you know, and it's like, I just don't, you know, we, we sort of tested zombies run on university students to see whether, like, it made them run more, and I'm like, yeah, but I don't want, I don't want, like, force zombies run on people, like, people should just choose whether to play it or not, in fact, like, you know, they're getting, and, they, and I sort of trust them to kind of know whether they're going to like it, and of course, you know, that's a problem in schools, where it's like, well, we just, like, more or less, like, force, force people to kind of do something, and, and, um yeah, you kind of want them, want to help them discover you know, things they might not might like, but they might not know about. But um, yeah, I just wish there were like more options.
0: That is the fascinating thing is that we've in education, and and I'm trying to pull in some of the pieces into, you know, private sector stuff, too. But in education, we we go immediately from the research about what works. And you had just said what what works with the game that you've created might not be the game for everybody. But we've decided systemically that say something like class dojo must be the thing that works for all kids or all classrooms or those places in which um, in which they are adopted. So it it really is that interesting move from like, here's what we have the data around, here's what we're going to assume what works. And then here's how we're going to, like, it, it really gets quickly into that course of space, that course of gamification that you were talking about there earlier, that in order to in order to achieve what works, it requires students, um, Uber drivers, Amazon employees, et cetera, to participate in these coercive structures. You know, there's there's not a lot of data. I don't know that, that I've seen or research that I've seen that says like, here's what works is, you know, I don't know the the bits about agency or autonomy or anything else because then you're responding to dozens, like like an infinite amount of ends. Yes. right it's all about yeah. me aligning means and ends through these sequences of coercion and perhaps i'm just i'm doing one of those things in a in a talk where i'm thinking out loud and trying to make connections but um that that is sort of a connection i think i'm making on my end there too is the that part about gamification or the, that part about coercion and gamification kind of go hand in hand, because as soon as you introduce the autonomy and agency components, I don't know, then people can start to make decisions about what it is that they want to pursue, what it is that they want to get done in there.
2: Right. And and it's so it, you know, the, the, the difficulty with, um, you know, trying to make these decisions, you know, on a kind of mass level is that you know, you end up kind of watering down the, the sort of effects that things can have. Like you can imagine that there's a game that will help kids um, get more excited about English literature or about, about, you know, learning French or something, but it only works on 0.5% of kids, right? And so like, how are you really gonna like figure that out? I just don't, you know, like it, it's just gonna be really difficult. If you went and tested it on everyone, it'd be like, well, it does nothing at all, basically. Like it's not statistically significant. But if you were, if those kids were able to find that game and use it, then um, it might be like genuinely like transformative. I remember, you know, I, I uh, studied, you know, I learned violin when I was growing up. And um, it was just horrible, horrible experience, because like, it's uh, like the violin just sounds terrible for the first five years you do it. And I remember like, coming up with an idea for a game. I was like, I think I could like design a game called Violin Hero that would like make they would like make learning in the violin like way more fun, and uh, and and you know the issue is that it, it would be difficult to sort of like go go and um <laughs> like how do you make money from it? Like it would be hard to sort of find the people that, that that would like it. But I think for the people who do like it, it would be transformative. And so it's a you know all of this comes down to a question of scale, which is just like we're trying to do things at massive scale because it's easier and cheaper than trying to be specific to. know different people to different subjects you know to to you know different learning styles or whatever we call it now and so I think that that you know the the good news is that people really like making games I mean you know like that you know game designers love making games and and they often do it for like you know for the love of it rather than for money and so you know I I would you know, like, I, I see, like, a great future, you know, within GRASP where, you know, we we go and, you know, I don't know how this would work, but we go and say, like, we would like there to exist games that that would sort of help people get excited about, you know, certain educational things. And and we, we want to sort of, like, help those things find an audience, you know, um, and there are some games like that. There are games that, you know, better than Duolingo or more interesting Duolingo. Like um, massively multiplayer games or or three D immersive games where you learn like you get sort of like dropped into some mystery you know environment and and they're only speaking in French and you have to sort of go and like, figure things out in that way. Like, oh, that sounds uh, great, you know. Um, but there's kind of a mismatch because you know the kids certainly don't have the money to go and pay for these games, you know. And God knows like trying to sell games to schools is impossible. I remember we we made these like health and fitness games and people would always say. Why don't you go and um, talk to the NHS, you know, the National Health Service in the UK and try and try and get these games, you know, um in front of in front of people who who could you know help, you know, who they could help. And like it's just I'm not even gonna like explore that because um that would be a good idea, but like there's there's no way I can convince, you know, um the NHS to to give us a time of day. Um and and that's partly because of scale and partly because of just cultural issues where. I think they think games are a bit silly, and probably they would think a zombie game is is just like absolutely insane. And so, you know, but and that and that would change eventually. Um, but, but I just wish it would happen faster.
0: Are there at, at are there areas of policy that you see being influenced by, you know, uh, my earlier question about macro effects? Do you see government officials in different places, the NHS elsewhere, actually like buying into? the gamified parts and implementing them into policy writ large
2: i mean you know i i i used to i mean i i sort of search for like gamification you know on google news you know all the time and and like you know you will see like i think there's like a uk local authority that was trying to use gamification to encourage people to for example you know use public transport or walk you know instead of driving but then I looked into it and it was like a, another generic gamification thing where I was like, well, 10 points if you walk today. I was like, this sucks, you know, put it in the bin, you know, and and so that is where they are, which is very kind of um, nudge-based, you know, quantified um, experience where, where again, it's, it's, a, it's an issue of scale where if you're a local council or local government, you know, like, well, we want to, like, achieve this thing. What is a piece of software which we can deploy you know, quickly that costs like 20,000 pounds that, you know, may or may not work, but we like, and we hope it works. I'm, I'm sure they hope it works, but, but, you know, involves, um, you know, that can be used by literally everyone and involves no change of any other services whatsoever, <laughs> you know, basically a silver bullet. And so I don't see, um, I don't actually see any change happening there at the moment. I think that the change will come generationally, you know, when when you have kind of like policymakers, you know, who and legislators who have like grown up with games, and the, to some extent they have. But also, I I kind of think, unfortunately, that a lot of policymakers and legislators are just really boring people or really busy people, and they've never really like actually played games, and so they just they've never really kind of connected that, you know, the dots there. Um, I look at the book to try and get people to think about this and to, to, you know, and to think about the harms of gamification, but also the the positive aspects. And people are, you know, like people, some people are thinking about it. It it is happening, but it's just happening, um, you know, very slowly. Um, And I think that it's, it's... If, if I was like a different person or, or we, we you know, I was like more motivated by making money a different way. I guess I would be sort of like, paying some pressure groups to sort of go and promote zombies rather than our fitness products as I guess a sort of, local government inter- intervention. And like, and then I would be like, oh, can I go and get like 50 million pounds or $50 million from the US government to like do an experiment? Like I could do that. I just find that like soul destroying basically. Um. So, so, so I don't do that. I'd rather just go and sell it directly to people even though, uh, you know, I sort of agree that that it would be nice if, if, you know, that there were sort of more, you know, you know, government to support it.
1: Right. There's, there's two things that you're bringing up and they're, they're very different from each other, but it's interesting to note. I, I think about how the EU has relatively recently implemented those regulations on games regarding gambling and loot boxes and how we know that, like ga- gambling and loot boxes are a really big deal to young people. You have kids that are becoming addicted to these things. They spend their parents' credit card. And now um, it's it's fairly difficult for game creators that operate in those countries. And even now in the United States uh, to do those things because they they want to be able to sell their product. And the form of regulation actually is working, even though they are always trying to find different ways to get around it. That's the first thing. But the second thing uh, that I, I I think highly relates to all this is... Um, I, I was just recently at ostensibly an ed tech conference, like yesterday, um, and uh, I saw Thomas linked in the chat. There, one of these softwares that uh, are are often sold. I've never seen PBIS rewards, but it, it's like they're always the same story. You you assign kids a number, you scan them, you uh, you say if they're doing something right or wrong, or you track them, you surveil them. Uh, right now, what's really hot are the uh, like student tracking apps of the hallway um so that you can prevent meetups and so kids like can't go to the restroom for too long and it's it's really creepy um honestly when you start really thinking about it uh i I'm adding uh, this so, onto
2: my, i I, yeah. I have a list of um bad gamification and and so like thank you for for that i'm i'm putting it in my list <laughs> uh
1: in it, it what's what's interesting to me is one obviously like the the edtech version of this is very black mirrorish. uh edtech has historically been and i'm, I'm sure you're probably familiar with like audrey waters work um with hack education um ed- ed tech has always historically been like some of the worst possible examples of black mirror s <laughs> technology um, because they all are designed through a tool of compliance um so that's kind of like the, the first thread but the second thread i don't have a chance we'll, if we'll have a chance to get to it but we're always interested with our or talking about beyond egg tech like what does gamification look like when it comes to a meta component of school for example grades and testing Um, because there's an element there of, uh, you call uh, the scalar effect, is that what it's called, where you're you're taking a very complicated issue and simplifying it. Um, uh, For example, like wine tasters, uh, where they'll give it a grade or a score, but realistically, it's very hard to distill something that's that complicated down to that, and at the end of the day, it means nothing. Um, So to rephrase that, first thread is like, what this looks like in ed tech and tracking and, and behaviorism and all that kind of stuff, like a virtual uh, Taylorism, digital Taylorism. Um, second thread is like, what are your thoughts about school in general? Um, I don't know if you have kids, but like just like the idea of grades and testing and how that relates.
2: Yeah. So, I mean, you know, the first thread, I, I think with ed tech, you know, ed, ed tech is the same as tech, you know, it, which is basically it, it's like pe- people trying to create a system. You know the the um, you know inevitable. You know, like it's easier to make the design a sort of technological system that that try sort of treats everyone the same and that that you know just throws kind of people into a database and um, you know doesn't you know that, that doesn't sort of cater for edge cases or things like that. And so the same sort of issues that you see with with technology that that tries to sort of monitor employees. You know that tries to maximize certain you know outputs or number is the same problem you see of edtech, which is just like and and you know the reasons why it gets adopted are are the same, which is just like well, you know institutions would would prefer just to like have one piece of software you know to use even if it's not very good because it's just like e- easier to do it that way and, and to administer, and so I think that one can hope for better versions of edtech, you know, and and um and I think that. Certainly what can hope for, for EdTech that that is, you know, one thing I did sort of talk about is at the very least, if a school is going to adopt Class can we not come up with an open source version of Class that schools can like customize? Like we, you know, like I, you know, we, we should do that, right? And I've seen this technology. None of it is really that hard to make. Like going throw like $50 million at some like team of crack government programmers and they will be able to like Im- replicate and improve on all the stuff open source. Like they would love to do it like programmers love to do, you know, would love to sort of do something that is like good for people, just go and pay them a decent wage. And like, then we can wipe out all these companies. It'd be amazing. Um, the second thread about, I don't have kids, you know, but I think that, you know, we probably all know about Alfie Cohen, you know, and Punished by Rewards and stuff. And and like, I found his book, you know, arguing against, you know, grades and, and scores and values, incredibly like persuasive. I I, I thought it was a little bit, yeah, you know, I, was, I, you know, like, I sort of, I, you know, like, I admire the fact that he's kind of so, um, I was going to say dogmatic, I think that's unfair, he's just like, so, he's just so, like, you know, he's not willing to kind of give an inch, he's like, I don't think you should go and, you know, praise people at all, like, stop praising people, I was like, I don't know, man, like, I, I praise people, but, like, maybe I should stop doing that, like, you know, I, I sort of admire that way, he's like, well, like, he knows what he thinks, that's for sure, uh, I, you know, like I think the the you know, yeah. Like I, I think again, grades are, are the product of a of system which which is just trying to. I'm sympathetic with it because it's just like, well, wow, we're just trying to like figure out a way of dealing with all these students, and we don't have enough resources, and we're just trying to like identify people who need more help, right? That that is what you know. Like I think if you like go go, if you give them like the most sympathetic you know read of grades, it's like well. Wow, um we don't need to use grades to go and screen people and different things but but you know like if someone gets an f then then we know who, who needs more help but then it i, that I think that there are ways of achieving this all without without um without using grades it just cost more money and so you know it, it sort of comes down to that if we if, if teachers had more time and had more money then then they wouldn't need to do it this way they can give more personalized feedback which would better i think we all sort of understand that you know um, but but it's just like we we're, we're in a situation where um, people or, or governments sort of not you know don't value you know that that kind of a you know well, they, they don't believe that it's going to have benefits which I think is a shame you know that you know like they um, so uh, you know there's a you know I run a, I run a games company and we have like thirty people and we hire a lot of people. And um, I see a lot of I see a lot of um, you know CEOs complaining about like how difficult it is to go and hire people, and they say, oh we you know we advertise this job position, I, I promise this is going to this is relevant, and we get like all these you know, CDs in and job applications in, and uh, I just don't have time to I don't have time to go and to go and read them, so I just go and like see which university they went to, I just go and apply this automatic grading procedure. To the job applications and so that is how I deal with it and I just I look at that and I think I just think you're not doing your job I like I like like you know I think you're just being really lazy like I you know like an, and when we have people who apply to our our company we read through every job application like it's not that hard like it, you know that that's literally what we're here for and it allows us to identify people who um you know maybe would not pass through like an automated you know grading process right um who maybe didn't go to the right university or who didn't have the right grades or things like that and i don't know how we would be able to go and formalize like our um our criteria for 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 that because in 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 some ways it's you know you you know when you see it when you, you kind of see someone who's kind of interesting and so i think that this sort of like reliance on grades and and um is is a product of just people being like i don't know i just don't want to i just don't want to have to like make the decision myself i'd rather like someone else do that for me faster
1: yeah i think that there's there's so many different threads to explore and i i, I really honestly think that this book is is influential for educators in the exact same way that like alfie Cohn's work is or, or many of the other folks that are talking about um the ways at which Well, corporate structures and schooling structures are very similar uh, in terms of like their culture and ways that they interact with students and with employees, but also just the concepts of extrinsic and intrinsic motivation, ed tech. I mean, there's a lot of different themes to explore that I think are very powerful. Um, So, Adrian, again, I I appreciate you being here. Uh, All of us, I think, are learning a lot. Uh, Your book, again, is You've Been Played, How Corporations, Governments, and Schools Use Games to Control Us All. Uh, Definitely check that out. Um, Anything else that we should know that's coming up, Adrian, that folks should check out?
2: Um, I just started a new newsletter um, because I have too much spare time, apparently, where I am trying to, it's at Um, And uh, basically I am trying to talk about games and essentially review games in a kind of more critical lens, but in a way that is not really boring to read. Um, and because I think that, that, um games are really important that they're, they're probably this century's most important form of art and uh i wish people would take it more seriously i wish gamers would take it more seriously i want to take it more seriously and so if you're interested in not not educational games i mean although some of the ones i will talk about are kind of educational and like okay the, the way i would sell it to people is like okay you probably don't have enough time to play all these games but you're probably like, interested in knowing what to think about them well, th- this is this is um, the newsletter view, so that's what I'm pitching at the moment.
1: Awesome, we'll definitely link it in the uh, the notes. Uh, final question, just out of curiosity, quick quick response: What's your favorite game of all time, video
2: game? You know, I I think that um, I don't know why I would say this because I didn't really play it that much, but like I really love this game, Into the Breach, which is kind of oh, like I a love puzzle that game. game. And, yeah, yeah, and. Um, I, like, I, I played it for, like, several hours, and I kind of, like, I loved it so much, I don't want to play the game in case I don't like it as much as I used to, but basically it's it's a bit like a bit like chess in some ways, but with, like, you know, robots and, and aliens, and um, I usually hate those kinds of games, actually, like, that's why I love it so much. Um, I, I'm not really very patient, I'm not a very patient a gamer, I get bored very quickly, and I don't like playing chess, and so when I, when I got this, I was like, oh my god, this is, like, so... It it's so amazingly done. And I think if you're kind of interested in game design, I would actually really look at it. I think it's one of the best game design design games I've ever seen because it managed to get me to play like a tactical turn-based game when I hate those games. Um and and um it it's also a great game because it's not really that addictive, you know. And and I think I think actually good games probably shouldn't be addictive. I know people like say that it's like a kind of compliments and like, mm, maybe we should be careful what what we
1: praise sure factorio is a good example uh of, of yeah. addictive games <laughs> yeah um but yeah at, at risk of this becoming like another hour about talking about indie games uh, thank you again adrian uh it's been incredible yeah. thank you. uh we'll be in touch soon and the recording will be live uh, on youtube shortly